Today I'm sitting down with some names that you might recognize. Jordan Davidson and Justin Streckel are returning in this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast. Please subscribe to our Patreon for exclusive access to new episodes of the Chillinoy Podcast at chillinoy.net slash Patreon. If you're not looking to subscribe to our Patreon, you can still support us with a one-time, monthly, or yearly contribution of your choice at chillinoy.net slash support. Enjoy the show. Hello, Justin and Jordan. Thank you both for sitting down with me today. Um, There is at least one thing. I actually found out another thing. It sounds like you both uh, do not like the Yankees, but there is one thing and perhaps only one other thing that you both have in common. Both of you are known for your thoughts and opinions on cannabis. And I've always wanted to be a fly on the wall during a conversation between the two of you. And today is my opportunity to do just that. As I mentioned in my invitation to both of you, I plan to allow you to open up the show with an introduction of who you are and where you stand on the topic of cannabis policy. From there, for the most part, I will allow you both to continue dialogue. Occasionally, I may interject if I feel that I don't understand something or if something seems unclear, but for the most part, I'm going to keep my interjections at a minimum. Now, I will be clear that today I am not fulfilling the role of a moderator. I am Cole Preston, the host of the Chillinoy podcast, and with that comes my clear and present biases. With that said, I will not pile up on either of you. Um, Jordan, thanks again for coming on uh, the show today. Since you're essentially entering the, the lion's den, I wanted to give you a chance to go first. So, Jordan, please introduce yourself. Tell us where you stand on cannabis policy. And if you'd like, please mention how our audience can follow you on social media and support you in your mission. Yeah, well, Cole, thanks so much for for having me on. And Justin, thanks for joining me. I'm looking forward to this. I think we can be constructive. You know, marijuana policy is really nuanced. I think everyone here knows that. And so I think the finer points of it are, are, are important and just intriguing to me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting about it. So I'm Jordan Davidson. Um, I'm a young person in, in long-term addiction recovery. I'll have four years of sobriety this December. And uh, I struggled with cannabis use disorder. Um, and that kind of led me to the work that I'm doing today for Smart Approaches to Marijuana, where I'm the Communications and Legislative Affairs Officer. So our mission is to prevent the, the legalization and commercialization of marijuana, which we see in you know, any way that it happens as, as benefiting big corporations, um, you know, tobacco companies that are invested in this industry and uh, you know, as, as basically pushing kind of an addiction for profit uh, model. It's dangerous for public health, we think, and we think it's dangerous for public safety. But that doesn't mean that we need to continue to maintain, you know, uh, marijuana's illegal status, or as people say, the war on drugs. Um, we believe that we have a middle ground policy area where we can decriminalize low levels of marijuana. So if you if you have a joint on you and um, a little baggie of weed, you're 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 not gonna have a have a record that's following you for your whole life. You don't need to be arrested. You don't need to be thrown in jail or in prison. Um, you know, if you have a problem with marijuana and if you need help. Um, just like we should do for, for, for anything in our society, people should be directed toward that help and treatment and offered recovery services. And so we stand at a point where we can reform criminal justice, um, but not go so far as to have pot shops on, on every corner. Um, so, so that's basically what my position is. And, um, if you're interested in following uh, me on Twitter, it's Jordan Davidson with the O's are zeros and, um, uh, learn about Sam, um, SAM is, is smart purchase marijuana's Twitter. Right. Folks, as always, uh, sorry, Justin, folks, as always, we'll have the links to all that in the podcast description. Uh, Justin, I apologize for cutting you off. Uh, please introduce yourself. Tell us where you stand on cannabis policy. And please uh, mention how our audience can follow you on social media and support you in your new project, uh, The Bullpack. No, well, hey, Cole, thanks so much for bringing us together. I, I've long wanted to do uh, a debate or a structured conversation uh, with with uh, the counterparts at, at Project Sam. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin. I am a medium term advocate for for the legalization of marijuana when, when it comes to 
how the government treats its own citizens in this freedom-loving, or at least freedom-espousing country that, that we all were, were so fortunate to reside right now. Um, you know, I, I stumbled backwards into this policy. I, I served as a legislative aide in the Virginia State Senate in 2015, uh, where I was working for State Senator Adam Eben, who had, it, who had committed to introduce the Commonwealth's first decriminalization bill. And uh, I helped draft that and working with partners uh, like the Virginia NAACP and the ACLU, among other groups, uh, you know, it really opened my eyes to the intersectional nature about how the criminalization of marijuana is used as a tool of oppression, uh, particularly for marginalized groups and people of color in the county of Arlington, not just across the river from Washington, D.C., the racial disparity of marijuana arrests was eight to one, where despite similar consumption rates by race. Uh, so, you know, it really opened my eyes. A couple years later, I got offered a job to go work as the political director and lobbyist for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, or NORML. Um, and I took that job very, very seriously, trying to uplift the voices of those who don't want to fear violence from the state uh, just because they choose to consume cannabis, be it for its, the medicinal properties and, and the relief that they get from a wide variety of medical issues, or just the fact that they enjoy it. Uh, you know, as someone who, who enjoys a good whiskey or enjoys a good red wine uh, to, to relax at the end of the day or hang out with my wife, uh, you know, I, I don't think that the government should criminalize people uh, for, for a substance that's objectively less harmful um, and has a much lower addiction portfolio. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been working on this for a while. I left normal at the beginning of, of 2022. Uh, I've since launched a new political action committee. It's the first PAC that's proactively engaged to highlight uh, that prohibitionist elected rep uh, representatives should not be in Congress. And, and I think that we need to get a pro-reform Congress and to somehow achieve a pathway to 60 votes in the United States Senate to end this heinous criminalization and failed policy of prohibition. And I'm really, really curious if I can, Jordan, you know, you mentioned you have a model and, you know, I've, I've, I've read through stuff Project Sam has put out. I've, I've heard you all talk about it. But, you know, I'm really curious, do you have an, an analogy that you point to where it kind of runs this middle ground where the state doesn't punish an individual um, with, with any fear of interactions with law enforcement and yet still maintains a prohibition on legal access? So, uh, so your question is essentially like, what does that model actually look like in practice? Yeah. Do, do you have an analog? Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 I don't I don't know if we have a, you know an analog that I could think of right now um, off the top of my head, but I, you know, in all policy, there 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 are trade offs depending on your values and, and your opinions, right? And so so our trade off is that you know there there are people who want uh, legal dispensaries. We say okay, let's let's do, and then there are people who who want criminal justice reform. Um, and we say, well, legal dispensaries, um, we're seeing that in places where marijuana is legal, we're increasing um, use rates, um, you know, increasing rates of things like, you know, mental health detriments as a result of marijuana use, um, anxiety, depression, even in some cases, psychosis. Um, and, and we don't want to encourage or increase the amount of marijuana use in our country. But we also don't need to be throwing people in prison either. So we don't need to have, you know, interactions with law enforcement, people going to prison, people going to jail, uh, you know, people having an arrest record that follows them for the rest of their life just because they have a little bit of weed on them. And, and that system, you know, depending on your values has trade-offs, but our value is, is public health. We put public health first. And so trying to design a policy that prioritizes that is difficult, but we believe that it's possible. Now, go governing is certainly tough. And, you know, one, one of the things that I think about, you know, in, in theory, I would love to agree with you more, right? Like in theory, it sounds great. Hey, let's, let's, you know, demandate law enforcement, uh, having the authority to go after people, but maintain a prohibition on the sale of this substance. 
But, you know, we, we now have had 85 years of prohibition, 52 years of, of an escalation of, of, of an intentional federal severe criminalization. And, and I, I don't know how, you know, I've worked inside and outside of government, and I don't see how you can circle that square. And when we, you know, and when we have such pressing issues facing our society, and when we, when we look at the available data, yes, there is a risk for addiction. Yes, there is a risk for, for del deleterious outcomes associated with consumption. But by, by almost every objective measurable standard, this substance is less harmful than so many things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Driving cars, uh, using coal as energy, uh, you know, McDonald's existing and clogging American arteries on a day-to-day -day basis. Why, how, how can you credibly articulate this position where you're going to say, okay, it's the role of law enforcement to go after distributors of marijuana, but not those in possession without seeing that mission creep and the perpetuation of, of the systemic harm of law enforcement interacting with people over the substance in general. So actually, so I just, it, I, I also, I, I will get to, to that question, but I also just thought of a, a great analogy that people who actually want to legalize marijuana often point to, and that's Portugal. Portugal is a great analogy for this conversation, right? People have to say, well, aren't drugs legal in Portugal? Drugs are not legal in Portugal. Portugal decriminalized drugs. Um, they have a you know, treatment system set up. And actually, a lot of the parts that I've, I have found, I don't know what your position is, Justin, but a lot of things that people uh, don't like about it um, is that it, you are, you know, they're able to actually send you to treatment, um, you know, whether you want to go to treatment or not, if they determine that you need treatment. Um, and, and they don't allow legal sale. And they actually saw like overdose rates even because they did this with all drugs, but you know, drop something like 50% and, and they've seen some, uh, a lot of success. So in marijuana, like there aren't marijuana dispensaries in Portugal, right? There are not pot shops in every corner in Portugal. Um, but you also don't have, uh, you, you know, you also don't have people going to prison just for having marijuana on them. And that's a system um, that definitely has had some flaws to it and has some downsides and hasn't worked in many ways, but it's not like they're, you know, it's like McDonald's or it's like Starbucks over there. So, so that's one thing that I'd say there are countries that are experimenting and maybe we do it differently in the United States, but there's something that's a, at least a little bit analogous. Um, you know, to the second part, I think that you, you know, you, you, if, if you, like law enforcement doesn't need to like, you don't, if, if you decriminalize low level possession, right? Like, the, the racial element and the profiling that 100% exists, um, that, that either goes away or gets out significantly decreased. And, and what I will say, though, is that legalization isn't necessarily the fix to this, right? So with legalization may, and, or decriminalization even, you might see um, reduced arrests or interactions for like simple possession, let's say. But what drug uh, causes the most arrest um, in the entire United States? Alcohol over a million arrests per year, right? Public drunkenness, um, you know, DUIs. There, people get arrested and interact with law enforcement all the time for alcohol. Um, and, and, you know, on that same theme about what you mentioned, oh, alcohol is, is more dangerous than marijuana. Like, it's like saying our headlights are out, so why not let's put out, why not put our taillights out too? Like, we have something that's been culturally ingrained in our society. First of all, tens of millions more people use alcohol, hundreds more millions of people use alcohol than marijuana. Right. It has been a, a, an incredibly, uh, you know, centerpiece of our culture for a long, long time. Um, so has tobacco. And so I don't think you can really just compare those substances. But we've also seen, right, how things like whether it's McDonald's or whether it's alcohol, how full commercialization goes wrong. So, you know, you can make some arguments. And actually, I think you can make some arguments that are some parts of marijuana, particularly with like mental health stuff and mental illness specifically, that might be even worse than alcohol. But let's even let's even just, you know, seed to your argument. Let's say that there are some parts of other drugs that are more dangerous, right? That doesn't mean that we need to follow that model for two drugs that has resulted in, you know, catastrophic and disastrous impacts on society. That doesn't mean we need to prohibit marijuana like we prohibited alcohol, you know, during prohibition. That doesn't, we've learned from prohibition. We've also learned from full-scale commercialization. So I say, let's just find that middle ground. So, 
So the thing that I think both of you got to in both your introductions and just diving right into that conversation is is the question, uh, which is one of the questions I was going to ask, should police be involved in these interactions at all? And Jordan, what you said today and you've said many times is that Sam opposes legalization, but you also support decriminalization of low level possession because we don't want a kid uh, that's caught with a joint to have an arrest record or a criminal record. We would rather see somebody who is struggling diverted to treatment. Now that's key. So not only low level, but diverted to treatment. You know, I mean, you just brought it up with Portugal. People are forced against their will. Um, would would you would you foresee that law enforcement would be involved in those interactions? Still? Yeah. So I think I'll just clarify like the law enforcement position. So I think like law enforcement 100% like has a role to play. Does it need to be the most dominant role in our drug policy? Doesn't need to be the most dominant, but there is a role to play. And, and I'll just kind of run through that. So, so the question is, um, you know, law enforcement are a big part of our society. Uh, you know, how should they be involved in our marijuana policy? Um, they might, they, they probably shouldn't be involved if you just have a joint on you, you know, arresting you and, and charging you and sending you to jail or sending you to prison. That's that's probably not what the role should be. Um, but there could be a role, you know, some, some people advocate for it. And we, I think, advocate for um, like some form of citations. Um, so so a, a form of a fine, a civil penalty um, that law enforcement could give someone who who is caught with marijuana. Um, uh, but we, we even see all, honestly in, in jurisdictions where that does apply in decriminalized jurisdictions, um, law enforcement don't actually even act on that a lot of the time. Um, and, and there's also a role to play in terms of getting treatment, right? It can be even if it's kind of a, a last resort. Like I, I, I went to rehab. Right, like like I did a, a thirty day outpatient rehab program almost four years ago now. Been there, done that. That was really lucky to have the support of my family. Right, my mom is like almost forty years sober, so I was able to open up to her about my substance abuse problems. And we discuss. And she, well, it wasn't even. I didn't want to go. Of course, many people don't want to go to rehab, right? But my mom was like, you know, it's not really a discussion. You've got to go. I was really lucky to have that community behind me. So the question is, what about people like me who are honestly even way further along in, in addiction and older and, than me? Um, what, what role is there um, for, for, for external forces in society, whether that be community or others, to get them to get help that they desperately do need? And if people don't have that support, there should be at least a last resort, a safety net for them so that they can actually get that help. And I think yeah. that that's where we could see law enforcement's role. And we've seen that in other countries of, you know, in encouraging that help um, or even strongly encouraging that um, or recommending it through drug courts. Right. Like we're a big proponent of drug courts, um, you know, diverting people to get rehabilitation instead of pure punishment um, so that they can actually get even rewarded for like sobriety and and, mm -hmm. and and getting into recovery. So I think there are plenty of rules for law enforcement to play. But it's just not what people think of as, oh, you're going to get cuffed and get sent to jail the next day. So, Ken, I got thoughts on what you just said. Um, but but just so that way I can I can try to frame this in a way that that could most resonate with you. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, can, can we just share our, our interpretation of the term defund the police? I'd love to hear your interpretation of that term. Uh, so sure. Um, I mean, I guess I, I like, I mean, I don't think we as an organization have any like official position on this. So I can only speak for like myself here, like just as Jordan Davidson speaking. I mean, I, I think that defund the police, um, is, is a slogan that, um, many, some attribute and uh, attribute too much, maybe to just totally abolishing the police. Some people think of it as that. Um, but many people think of it as, 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 as a slogan to ignite reform, um, you know, and to actually change how criminal justice operates. Um, personally, I think it's a very poorly worded slogan. If there are people who, you know, if there are people who want to abolish the police or really actually seriously cut all the funding for 
for police, that's a good slogan. Um, I think many people don't share that vision who would say defund the police. So do I think it's a good slogan in terms of a marketing perspective? Not really. Um, but I think that there is a wide range of people and that's kind of the problem, right? There's, there's people who are on way different ends of that spectrum and what they see reform as meaning. I don't know if that gets to your question. Um, no, 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 you, 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 you hit it. And, 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 and I think you, you, you open up the door for, for me to meet you yeah. in a place you're better to resonate. Cause, cause I think you and I agree that it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a poor slogan, right? Um, you know, if, if, if I had my, my way, I would tweak that bumper sticker instead of reading defund the police to be demandate the police and adjust funding accordingly. Um, I think too often we as a society treat law enforcement as this catch-all to address all of societal's ills. And I, I firmly, philosophically oppose the idea of tasking the agency that has the monopoly on violence, that carries weapons of death, to be the ones who are supposed to be the first responders to issues uh, that, that stem from poverty and mental health. Right. I think that there is a role for law enforcement to play in our society. That role is predominantly to be the documenters of crime. A lot of people believe law enforcement's main job and, and main role is to prevent crime. It's actually to document it. Right. Um, they, they are a response oriented system, not and much less of a proactive. And we and we've seen that more and more, particularly in poor communities where you know, it, it, they, they, they act as a response and, and an aggressive threat as opposed to a proactive uh, member and partner. So I think that, you know, when, when you say things like, you know, the, that law enforcement should encourage that help and, and that you support drug courts and that people should be rewarded for their sobriety, I take tremendous philosophical concerns with that worldview because I, I view that as this paternalistic state where, you know, who's to say you can't apply that same exact rationale on your moral belief that that uh, that is informed by your personal experiences that that I should be subjected or anybody else should be subjected to that same threat of state violence um, as a result of, of your morality. Right. You know, we we don't impose Christianity on people. We don't, you know, just as we wouldn't impose Judaism or, or Islam or any other religion, right? At least hopefully we, 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 we're all in support of freedom of religion. So, you know, when, when we think about the role of law enforcement, I, and, and, you know, regardless of where you stand on, on the idea of depenalization or decriminalization, which are two very different things, you know, you keep saying you support decriminalization, but then you cited Portugal, which actually depenalized. And, and, and the difference there is, is decriminalization still has it as a civil infraction. So law enforcement still have the impetus, the, the, the mandate to engage with inter, with, in, in interactions with citizens as a result of a suspicion of simple possession. So if, 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 you, if you're willing to say you support depenalization, the complete removal of any criminal or civil penalty, for possession, then I think we can get to a place of, 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 of a broader common ground. But the idea of, of, of sicking the morality police on everyone within the population, just because there is a subset, a tiny, tiny subset of the population who, who is susceptible to, to adverse consequences as a result of marijuana consumption, you know, that would be analogous in, in a way to, you know, and, 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 I, and I hate to, you know, continue to go back to, to, to hamburgers as, as, as an analogy here, but that would be like saying, let's criminalize hamburgers because of America's obesity problem. You know, I, I think that there are ways that we can use statecraft as a nudge unit. You know, you, you don't think people should smoke pot fine. Right. But, you know, wh whether or not we choose to send our, our agents of, of who, who have a monopoly of state violence to go engage in interactions, I think that's that's two separate things. Um, and just in general, you know, I, I think drug courts are, 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 are a slippery slope issue where often the rhetoric does not match the record. And, and I think. Uh, 
you know, I'm, you know, if, if, if I didn't know what I know, I would, I would support that talking point, but I've seen what I've seen. And that is the, the actual real world implications of how drug courts work in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia as a result of my experience doing public policy there. And that's why I got to philosophically and fundamentally and vigorously disagree with you on drug courts. Yeah, well, so just want to address a few things you said. Uh, firstly, just a clarifying point. Um, I, I don't believe Portugal depenalized. Um, the, the New York Times quote says, Portugal's law removed incarceration, but people caught possessing, possessing or use illicit drugs may be penalized by regional panels made up of social workers, medical professionals, and drug experts. The panels can refer people to drug treatment programs, hand out fines, or impose community service. So that's the language um, the New York Times used to describe uh, Portugal's drug policy. Um, that's, that's number one. Uh, number two, I think that you, we're getting a little bit, and I know the conversation is about law enforcement. Like, I just think we're getting a little bit caught up in um, like, you know, exactly the mechanism of, of getting you know, treatment for people, um, you know, whether it's voluntary or whether it's something that's encouraged or, or recommended or required by, by people in the community, whatever structure you want, right? Like that doesn't have to be just law enforcement doing that. I mean, you just like, like I just read to you in, in Portugal, they have social workers and medical professionals doing that, but they still have the enforcement of the law. If someone they deem has, ha, has a significant problem that would require treatment. Um, you know, there's, there's a great, um, it's a really touching story. Um, so, so I, I recently saw at least the beginning portion of a, of a documentary. Um, I, I don't know if you guys heard of it. It's tipping the pain scale. It's a, it's a new documentary that got released and someone who we work really, really closely with her story was highlighted. Um, representative Lauren Davis. Um, she is a, a, you know, not that this matters, my partisan leaning, but a fellow Democrat, uh, Lauren Davis. Um, and um, so sort of an idol for me as a, as a Democrat who is against marijuana legalization um, in the state of Washington. Um, she, she, she's, she is a state representative there. And the reason that she, and she explains this, and she could tell her story obviously way better than I could, but I just like to summarize because I think it, it helps, you know, expound the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, the reason she's kind of involved in this is because she had a friend, Ricky, and uh, he was her best friend. And uh, Ricky had severe, severe AUD, alcohol use disorder, and was basically knocking on death's door. Ricky went to uh, emergency services, went to the hospital, and there was a loophole in the federal, in, sorry, not the federal, the state law that allowed people to be um, admitted, um, even involuntarily, for mental illness concerns, but not for addiction. So Ricky fell squarely through that hole in the system um, and did not uh, receive the treatment when he needed it. And luckily he's, he's still here and he's actually in recovery and, and things ended up okay. Um, but, uh, that's why she actually went to, to, to the state house and actually, you know, sewed up that loophole. Um, so, so it doesn't need to be, Oh, a police officer comes and, and arrests you and then takes you in and throws you in rehab. It doesn't need to be something like that. It's a situation where I describe with people like Ricky or things that are going on in Portugal. Um, you can have many different ways of looking at this. And so I don't think it's all about oh, penalizing or, or criminalizing this or that. I think that there are just many ways of approaching this. And, um, you know, I'm sure many people have different views on how to do that. Yeah. And I it just if I could return to what I, I guess I'm really grasping on, uh, it, it's the idea that when you you I constantly see you say it or other people in your organization say, we would rather see somebody who is struggling diverted to treatment. And when you, you have just jumped to the fact, the assumption that they're struggling and that they must be diverted to treatment and that it's, that that's like, it seems like that's the uniform answer from Sam. Am I wrong in understanding that? Cause I mean, we've I gone think, back and forth on the, yeah, the whole like, low like, level. Like, like, like our, like we can always be improving how we treat you know, mental illness, how we treat drug addiction, how we treat all sorts of things, but like, you know, a path of rehabilitation and the treatment methods that we have today, um, you know, that are in our system. I mean, you know, are, are as good as we have right now. 
right? So they're, they're the best we got, the current treat, best we have the current treatment model, right? And I, I just don't think people should be left hanging. Like our, 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 our kind of organization, like this is a statement from Patrick Kennedy, a Demo, former Democratic congressman who co-founded SAM. And I've said this many times, um, it has caused quite a controversy when I say it, um, which continues to surprise me, but this is our mentality. Meet people where they're at, but don't leave them where they are. That's, that's our mentality. Right. There are people who say there are people and not not saying like Justin says this. I don't know who, but there are other people who I've heard say this, that literally I, I was actually it was crazy. A little I'll tell you a little crazy story. I was in um, a SAMHSA and ONDCP uh, basically committee with a ton of different people, stakeholders, um, and we were meeting to uh, talk about harm reduction and about kind of creating a new definition for harm reduction. And I said that 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 phrase, and that, and that could be about marijuana, it could be about other drugs, and people lost it. People told me, you know, uh, one woman told me that if my daughter was out on, on the street addicted to anything, um, I would not come to her um, with anything other than harm reduction. I would not even encourage or tell her about treatment um, because that would be paternalistic of me um, and 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 like people just want to you know meet people where they're at but don't take them kind of to a place of of, of safety and, and treatment and so we think that that is not an acceptable model to just leave people there I mean we have a drug crisis we have an overdose crisis um, that's honestly something that's and and I don't know Justin maybe you, you have thoughts on this I'm actually sure you have thoughts on this that I believe is interconnected we you know there's this whole like political politicized thing about gateway this gateway that whatever with marijuana i think we can just like put that to the side for right now and just say the facts are that you know 95 99 plus percent of people who are using substances like heroin start out with things like marijuana and alcohol that does not mean that everyone who uses marijuana and alcohol are going to go on to those harder substances it's not like you smoke smoke a joint or like oh wow i want crack cocaine next that's not what i'm saying um but you know the point is if we lower use of marijuana we ostensibly will lower you know you know the rate of, of use of other drugs as well including marijuana and so we have a drug crisis that is interconnected an overdose crisis that is interconnected and that frankly starts with younger people using what people might describe as softer substances whether that's cigarettes or tobacco or tobacco or alcohol or, or or marijuana and so i think it's really important that we recognize that and that all stages not leaving people where they're at um so so that's kind of how we look at the issue cole and and why we say that and um we, we we do need treatment to be a major a major factor in that because you know it has proven time and again that there are methods that do work quite well do you uh, you know not 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 to make you own the words of a former republican senator and, and attorney general but you know especially as a as a professed democrat um but but would you agree with Jeff Sessions when he stated good people do not use marijuana or do not smoke marijuana? Uh, that good people do not smoke marijuana? No, no. I, so you think good people can smoke marijuana and still be drug good? Use, drug use is not a moral issue. Drug use is not a moral problem. And, and I guess I didn't address this before, but like, Justin, you were kind of talking about like sticking the, the moral morality police on people, right? Like, I, I hope, I'm, and there are clearly, you know, are people out there, you just may be named one, that have not moved past this drug use is, to is just a, a, a moral failing. Look, I, 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 I had a drug addiction. I, I don't... I. I don't consider, maybe I just wouldn't like to consider myself as an immoral person. I know people who struggle with addiction and I think everyone knows people who struggle with it. Um, it, it, it is a problem. It's a brain disease. It's a, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, you know, bio socio psychological problem. Um, and so I, I just don't think it's, it's useful to say things like that. You know, there are plenty of good people in the world. Many of them don't smoke marijuana and I'm sure many of them do. You, yeah. you, I, I am also sure that many good people smoke pot um, and, and they do so. And, and they're terrific, upstanding members of their community. They, right? they might be. But and, and, and oh, no, oh, actually, no, I want I want to hear where you're going to yeah, go. So, so like this is and this is where I feel like there's and I guess I, I guess I should. I, I don't know 100 percent where you're going with this, but I know where other people have gone with this. Like there are good people who who drink alcohol. There are good people who smoke cigarettes. Um, that doesn't mean that alcohol and cigarettes are something that should be 
encouraged are something that, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's like people that we don't say you should smoke cigarettes because good people do smoke cigarettes. I think we hold this model, right? Um, you know, or this image up of, oh, we have our favorite celebrities. People talk about Seth Rogen, how successful he is, right? And he is Snoop Dogg and they're smoking marijuana all the time. And that's, and you know, now we have these CEOs saying they're micro dosing on LSD. And I, this is, this is the question I would ask, right? What is the goal of that? There could be there could be two goals in my mind, and Justin, maybe you have other thoughts on this. One goal is is, and I would assume this is probably yours, is a more earnest and honest one, which is to destigmatize, um, uh, you know, the uh, use of drugs. In my opinion, for the purpose of letting people talk about it and be open about it, with the idea that if people do struggle with it, they're not afraid of asking for help. So, so, so destigmatizing the conversation, not necessarily right, the conversation surrounding that. Um, but then there is what I think most people um, actually use that for, which is, oh, well, Seth Rogen's really cool and he smokes weed. So that must mean like weed is really good for you and that uh, people should be smoking weed and that if you want to be you know, successful in these ways, maybe you should even smoke weed. I, I don't think that that's a productive conversation for public health. And I think that's disingenuous. I don't necessarily think the other thing is, but I just want to know what, what, what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, <laughs> you know, I think that when we talk about where, like, a, you just made a bunch of assumptions about other people's assumptions, right? So, so I, I don't know what an assumption squared is, but but we'll just, you know, acknowledge that, you know, you just cherry picked a couple of things, and that then and that's not like tangible data, right? Like, we don't know what population of the percentage of people who have an opinion about Seth Rogen believe that he is talented because he smoked weed, right? He, he, he chooses to. And, uh, you know, when, when I think about, you know, when I think about like the different models we can, we can look towards, you know, I really appreciate what Canada did when, when they legalized when it comes to advertising. You know, Jordan, we, we talked a little bit about this uh, in, in the, in the pre-show. Um, where you know in canada they have pretty stringent restrictions on what legal cannabis companies uh can put on their branding and and very strict um, about celebrity endorsements you can't do it right i don't think marijuana should should be marketed as this culture of cool i mean if anything i think one of the best argument one of the best uh deterrents for youth consumption would be to have joe biden endorse legalization right joe biden is the antithesis of cool um so i i think that's a pretty cool whip he drives a pretty cool car does drive a pretty cool car he's not driving anymore he's the president they, they don't drive um but there, there was that Onion article back when he was VP, where he's washing his washing his car in the front. Neither here nor there. Um, but you know, I, I think mo most of the concerns that that you've articulated about the cultural impacts can be addressed and mitigated through thoughtful regulations about the the distribution and commercialization of a substance, right? You know, America is one of only, I believe, two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise their products. I personally support a ban because I don't think that that we should be treat we we should disempower doctors and and lead people who have anxieties about their health rushing to doctors saying hey i saw a commercial and there was a little cloud that followed the the little bubble boy and made it rain on him and then you and then he got a pill and everything was a sunshiny day yeah, agreed right agreed. so i i think that you know but but more broadly just in america i used to do tax policy before i did cannabis policy right and like when i learned that um, every single advertisement that we see is a write-off for the company that, that's making that advertisement. That means every time you drive down the road and you see a McDonald's advertisement or a Bud Light advertisement or, or whatever, you as a citizen are paying a higher overall tax burden for the, for the cost of the government for the privilege of getting to see that ad. Right. So I think I think everything is, is one to two degrees, uh, two degrees of separation from tax policy. I think that's something where where I, I would hope 
you acknowledging that eventually we're going to legalize marijuana, um, that that you would be supportive of a once the 280E issue falls as a result of decriminal or descheduling, you know, you and I can hold hands and sing kumbaya uh, in, in in unanimous support for the non-deductibility of marketing expenses from for uh, cannabis companies, um, because I don't think. That, that we should, through the tax code, incentivize cannabis companies to advertise, right? I don't. Um, yeah, should we, you know, we, we've, we've been going back and forth on a couple different issues. Um, but but going, back to, going back to just like the idea of good people can smoke pot, right? Like, and, and, and you fully acknowledge that, that it's, there are good people in this country who smoke pot. Like, then how is it fair how is it fair to those good people for you to 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 advocate day in and day out that that they should have to live in fear of the police and and live in fear of this idea of going to a drug court building and and all of the heinous collateral consequences that that come as a result of the sentences that drug courts give out disproportionately harming poor people yeah so firstly to address the advertising thing look so so i think where we where we probably differ ideologically just on this issue is like i view legalization as opening pandora's box i i say that you you know great like if if, if you said marijuana just became legal jordan uh, let's talk about advertising. Yeah, I think you and I would probably find a lot of common ground. I agree with everything you said on the advertising front, but I don't trust, like I, you, you and I have both been, I know you and I have both been in congressional office. We offices, we, we, we both met other lobbyists. We've both seen the inside of this system and how much uh, money controls things and how things can just, you know, you know, flip from one day to the next in terms of regulation, even though things are slow and moving and things do change. Uh, I don't trust that the industry that has billions of dollars behind it uh, will not actually effectively uh, you know, reverse anything, even if you had you know, some good policy elements out front, um, you're opening that, that, that kind of box forever. So, so that's just like where we probably differ ideologically on, maybe you are more optimistic on um, the ability for regulations to stand and actually have a positive impact. Um, whereas I am not. Um, in terms of uh, like the 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 like living in fear, I I I I think that there's just like first of all, you know, we get we can talk more in depth like about what it might look like to have things like drug courts or what it might look like to have people getting sent to treatment. But that's not just like someone who's smoking marijuana just like you wouldn't have just you know there are states that have laws that allow you to be sent to jail i just mentioned washington right like washington isn't incarcerating and throwing people in jail or in treatment for you know going to the you know to having a drinking a beer at home like or or you know something like that i mean that's just kind of absurd to think about um and and there's all this idea also something i hear from a lot of congressmen um uh, is that oh well you know my constituents are really afraid that um they're gonna have the feds coming after them and that you know they're gonna have all these problems i mean literally it's informal federal policy that they won't even enforce um <laughs> a lot of the laws i mean like it's it's ridiculous i mean they don't enforce the laws um which which maybe leads me to also wanting to bring up uh, Justin, if, you know your thoughts on on the the pardons um, and the call for the rescheduling. If you'll indulge me, I have my own thoughts on this um, that I just like to talk about because I'm sure everyone this is what everyone is is talking about. Um, yeah, let's let's let let, let, let let's stay on this point for a second about regs, and then and then we'll we'll move yeah. on to the the because yeah. you know you you refer to it as Pandora's box with legalization yeah. and um, you know. I, I think that you know you 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 equivocated on our experience in lobbying, and, and I I think I got a little bit more. On no, no, no. I, yeah, you but, you have more experience. Um, but I'm just saying we've both been but, been in those places. Yeah, and you know, in in my in my previous life, I, I did a lot more work on campaign finance reform, and you know, I've I, I worked on campaigns for about ten years, and 
you know, I've, I've, you know, my favorite campaign finance system was New York City, where they have hard spending caps on, on how much a campaign can can bring in. Right. So like once they hit that and they have a, a generous public matching system. So it really changes the incentive structure for policymakers when it comes to the money. So when when you cite the the in my view, and I think we agree on it, it, I, I hear that we agree on the egregious influence that organized money has on our lawmaking system. I just don't think that that means that we should hold marijuana reform and, and, and addressing the harm that the status quo of criminalization inflicts on people on a daily basis. I mean, we, we've been on this call now for about 40 minutes. And in that time, a, a, approximately 27 Americans have been put into steel handcuffs. Um, around this country at one in every 90 seconds. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I don't think that we should hold marijuana policy reform hostage to the broader systemic democratic f issues and, and candidly, you know, dire situation that, that our republic is in. Um, you know, because if, if only to use a term that you brought up earlier, it's a form of harm reduction, right? It's, there, there, there is no utopia here. Right. Earlier when you were saying, you know, oh, it's hard to put what, what our policy is, you know, it, it, on, on um, in practice. But here we have this policy paper like communism looks great on paper, but it hasn't worked in in, in, in a sustained way, um, you know, anywhere where it's been attempted. Now, admittedly, well, no, could, admittedly, you could attack my last analogy because of U.S. intervention in the CIA, but that's a whole different dialogue. Well, I, and that's not what we're here to talk I, about. No, no if, 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 if I may, I got this one, one last thought, then turn it back to you, then we'll go to pardons. Like, but, but to your point about how, you know, you, you, you closed just now saying, you know, oh, the feds don't enforce the law. You're damn fucking right. The feds, excuse my language, Cole, you're damn right that the, the feds aren't enforcing the law. This is state and local police. They are the ones who who are are breaking down people's doors and frisking people and using the odor or or of of cannabis as a justification to invade someone's privacy um, over a completely victimless crime. So you know, I, I just I, I hate I, I I hate to think that because as you put it the moneyed influence is stranglehold on Washington, D.C. And, and our Congress um, as as a reason to not provide any relief on any policy area that is currently facing our, our diverse and dynamic population. Well, I mean, but like I, I, I sat here advocating for reducing criminal penalties. So like I, I have just I, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't make any changes. Um, uh, but I'm glad that you brought up the state and local level because because that, that's something that actually people on my side of the issue oftentimes don't even want to touch because they think that they've lost on that. Um, but it's connected to the pardon. So so I just want to like introduce, I guess, that topic of conversation um, and then move on it, alongside that with the state and local level. OK, so obviously Joe Biden just uh, pardoned people convicted of simple marijuana possession charges from 1992 to 2021. So that is a move that we support. I um, think it was a positive step um, for criminal justice reform. Uh, a, few, a few things. Um, for, for, for a decade, we have been saying that there are not people spending their lives in prison um, just for having, uh, you know, possessing marijuana. And this showed that. So, you know, sick, only 6,500 people across all 50 states um, were affected. Uh, by the pardon in over three decades. Um, and the administration, a senior administration official, told the press that there is not a single person in federal prison today just for simple marijuana possession. So there's no, so no one got out of prison because of, of this, of this part of it. So what do you often hear? You know, a lot of people, even, even like pro-legalization people are, are admitting that they're actually, uh, what I, what I've heard a lot is, is people actually flipping the argument, right? The, the other side of this issue says, you're exactly right. A lot of people weren't affected. And do you know why? Because this is a state and local issue. That's what I hear. 
but I'd just like to run through some of the numbers on that. And unfortunately, because state and local data is a lot more difficult to compile, we haven't been able to do a great job of knowing what, um, you know, what the real statistics are. Um, but I'll actually set the parameters for this debate, the frame of this. In, in a period of time, I don't, you know, it's not good to usually use old data, but in this case it is. In a period of time, that would actually give uh, you know, the most benefit to the pro-legalization side of this. Let's go back to 1997, a year after California legalized medical marijuana. There were very few states that had decriminalized marijuana, very few states that had engaged in any expungement processes, and no states in which marijuana is recreationally legal. It was the point where the prison boom caused by uh, mass incarceration was, you know, on the rise, significantly on the rise, you know, it, you know, for, for, for a decade or more, even from then. Um, and so there were a lot of people over over a million um, people in 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 uh, in prison. Um, but the data, even at that time, when there would ostensibly be a lower percentage of people in state prisons, because today there have been many decriminalization, legalization, and expungement provisions caught, you know, enacted into law. Even then, this is the data at what people might call one of the peaks of the war on drugs. Okay. 0.7%, this is from ONDCP's uh, ONDCP report, 0.7% of people in state prisons were there for marijuana possession, which amounts to less than 8,000 people in the entire country, and 0.3%, which is less than 4,000 people in 1997, were, 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 were there as a first time. So majority of people who were there um, were, were, were repeat offenders who, who might've actually done things prior to that, that we would probably all agree deserve a punishment like assault or something. Um, and, and, and thus maybe a sentence could have been exacerbated. What we, what we don't even know um, is, is how many of those people who are there for marijuana possession only pled down from other charges because the data will just tell you the data might tell you what someone was arrested by, but plea deal information is actually uh, surprisingly uh, sealed in, in many ways. And so you just kind of see the beginning and the end. So there could have been someone, I'm not saying there is, but there could have been out of those less than 8,000 people, someone who trafficked drugs, pled guilty to that, and were reduced to a, to a possession charge. So we're talking in, 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 in a point where almost no jurisdiction in the country did any expungement or decriminalization, even then, fewer than 8,000 people were there. I'm not saying that they should be there. I, I think those, those records should be expunged. Don't get me wrong, but also don't get it twisted. There aren't hundreds of thousands of people or something in prison for this. Oh, yeah, no, and I, I, I think you, you identify something that I've had a lot of conversations with and, 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 and we, despite differences of how we, we present it, we're, we're, we're citing a, same, a, a similar flaw in a talking point often used by advocates. It's not people who are in jail for simple possession, right? It's, but the simple possession charge that, again, disproportionately get given to people of color and poor people are then used against them should they have another run-in with the law. And then so on for all of those people who are in jail that that you just kind of glossed over, right? Like the the cause you said it was 0.8%. It was like 0.7%. 0.7%. So the 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 99.3% of other people, I'd be curious since you got the data in front of you clearly, th does it say how many of those in there had their first charge with law enforcement or the interaction with the judicial system being a marijuana charge? Because muted, Jordan. Just because just as you yeah. yeah, the data so the data set so what the data says is so out of all state prisoners, 0.7% are there for, for marijuana possession only charge. And then um 0.3% were um were first time uh, convictions. Yeah. But no, so that, that that's not the point. So oh, sorry. you know what 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 I'm talking is, you know, just just as some some individuals and, and some that you associate with like to like to cite the gateway theory when it comes to consumption here it's it's the gateway theory and um only it's actual real date uh is it's actual real world uh implication for the gateway theory in uh, gateway to further incarceration so an individual could have a marijuana charge on their record later in life have another run with the law and now they're a repeat offender 
right? So now they're going to get less leniency from from a court uh, or from a judge when it comes to comes to sentencing. And not to mention three strike laws, right? Where your first two strikes might have been a joint. And then your second strike, maybe you you stole 50 bucks or whatever, whatever it is. Now you're under the three strike system. You're done. You're getting incarcerated for for the first two things were victimless crimes. Right. So that's I think that's that's what how marijuana's criminalization and, and the, the utilization of possession charges is is secretly stacking the, the dominoes of, of our total incarceral state. Right. Yep. Um, so that that's one thing, you know, I, I know that, you know, a lot a lot of my colleagues um, in, in the reform movement like to you know paint this picture like there's a lot of people in, uh, in jail for simple possession. Jordan, you're right. There's not. Um, and but I, I, I think that, you know, by punching down there, you're you're missing the broader issue. Right. I one of my best friends in the world and, and the animating feature for what really fuels my righteous indignation on this issue is uh you know we 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 were arrested together once we were kids um and uh at 18 years old and earlier in that evening we we were camping we had a joint we threw it in the fire after we were done with it but we also had some alcohol so we got hit with underage possession alcohol and we sat there for an hour handcuffed on the picnic table watching law enforcement the the cops there searching on their hands and knees in in the darkness with their flashlights trying to find cannabis so that way they could give us that extra charge. So even though they just hit us with the underage possession of alcohol charges, the the consequences I got from the judge was 40 hours of community service and court costs. The consequences he got from the judge was um, court costs, $500 fine, a year of probation, and a year of drug testing that he had to pay for. And and because of that difference, and he also that that you was then later used as an adverse determination against him for his uh, through his FAFSA, right? Because that was before FAFSA changed to uh, for for his eligibility for college aid. So, and I, I'm I'm guessing that you've already determined the difference between him and I, right? Yeah, I've I've heard your story. I've heard the story um, before, and but I but I would have guessed anyway. Yes. So, you know, it's just, it's the color of your skin, right? Like, so if, if we're going to address systemic harms, we need to, we need to address the whole system. And, and so often it's these initial charges that, that get used against people later in life. And, and that's not to mention, you know, just, and I don't expect you or I or, or, or anyone listening to this podcast to, to take it upon themselves and to solely address the, like, uh, cycles of poverty in this country and, and, and the generational harm of, of this crony capitalist system that was literally built on the backs of, of slavery, right? Like, I don't expect you as an individual to, to, to comprehensively address this. I'm just saying that, that, that your efforts to maintain law enforcement's role when it comes to, to citizens uh, and, and, and their personal choice to consume cannabis, uh, I'm just saying that that is yet another brick in the wall of, of our broader problem. And so Jordan, I want to give you 30 seconds and then we're going to do a machine gun rapid fire. Cause we're short yeah. on time. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, like, I, I guess I just, I, I reject that. I think that we can have a system that, that, that does work and that does involve the criminal justice system, but it might not be the overwhelming, um, uh, force in, in, in how we deal with, with drug addiction. Um, also something I just wanted to quickly address and then call, I'll pass it back to you is, you know, and you know, I'm sure this will make me very popular on your podcast, but you keep calling this like a victimless crime. I know why you call it a victimless crime, but, uh, but I also would like to just underscore that there are actually victims of whether it's marijuana use or other drug use. And it's not, you know, first and foremost, the individual who uses, who, you know, people have died by suicide, even from increased rates of suicidality, but, you know, using really high potency THC and dabs. Um, but it also affects families. I mean, you know, it, like, I, you know, even, even in an emotional way, um, which I still think you can be a victim in that way. Like I saw the impact of my even more limited time use of marijuana um, before the age of 18 on my family. Like I lost the trust of my entire family and they had to like, we had to change 
plans to move cities. We had to alter like our entire life, um, financially difficult. Um, there are all sorts of, of problems and just emotional turmoil. And um, I wouldn't call that victimless, um, you know, and there are even more extreme situations. I mean, that's a, a privileged person and, and it still impacted other people around me. So I just wanted to slide that in there too. I, I, I would look up the definition of victim when, when it comes to our legal system. I, I appropriately use the term. Okay. So uh, we'll we'll move on uh, really quick. Uh, less than less than thirty seconds, Jordan. I just wanted to start with you. You just brought up potency, which is a topic I wanted to get to today, uh, but we are very short on time. So I'm going to put you in the TV time slot in less than a minute. Um, do you? I mean, in order to enforce potency limits or to even require potency to be tracked, you would need a regulated market. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, like if you want to. If you like, if you want to like, right, having a store, you're selling marijuana, right? Yeah. But, but the, but the, but, but the reason that we have, so don't get it, don't get it wrong. The reason there are high potency products on the legal and illicit market are because of legalization, right? But the reason. The reason you know that is also because of legalization, right? But, but, but I mean, but we've had hemp and cannabis and marijuana around for decades. You know, legalizers often say, oh, my God, it's been around for a thousand years. Well, this high potency stuff hasn't been. Okay, if it's been around for hundreds of years, for centuries, for thousands of years, why is it just after it's been legalized and, uh, you know, in, in certain states is the industry picking up and now it's all high potency? I mean, it's 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 the reason it's the reason, right? Like, But if you oh, want to protect people from high potency cannabis, would you agree you would need that regulated market to, to no, I don't, I, I, I don't, uh, no, I disagree. I disagree with that because I think that it will only worsen the situation, and 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 the legal market will only worsen the high potency situation, and 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 will have even more dangerous products. So I do reject that. Justin, anything, and then we're going to have to wrap. I know we're close on close on time. I, I'd prefer to know what it is I'm consuming, and, and the only way to do that is to have it through a regulated market. And I do prefer low potency pot. So, I, Justin, I just want a very quick question to you about something that annoys me. So, on the one hand, you have a lot of people who who want to legalize marijuana, saying, "Oh my God, it's it's so much safer than all these other things. It's so safe. It's not really that harmful." But on the other hand, they're saying, "Well, we need to legalize it because if we don't know what's in it, then it could be really harmful." First of all, those two things don't really seem to be in conjunction. And secondly, just you know, the twenty second economics of drug dealing is you hear a lot of fentanyl laced marijuana stuff. We might even agree that that doesn't exist it's very it doesn't exist right um and so like it's it's it's, it's ridiculous so i you know it, it, marijuana is oftentimes not laced because drug dealers know that people who smoke marijuana will not go back to them if they lease their drugs so i, I don't see how those two things import all right well i think we're gonna have to uh justin i mean if you want a, a final word here um but i think it's uh, just about time that we start to wrap up did you want a final word on that or did you want to close no, I mean, I think, you know, Jordan and many others who, who bring up the potency issue, um, you know, I, I think that there is a there there, um, you know, candidly, I, I think a lot of the framing is in bad faith, but I, I think that there, it, it does speak to a real there there, um, you know, just as when I go to a bar and I, and I sit down and I grab a beer, I know that there's a big difference if I order a like a Miller Lite versus if I order a, a pint glass full of Wild Turkey 151, right? So I, I think in order to have better, you know, better consumption habits, you need more informed consumers. And I think as we would all agree, people like smoking pot and and the prohibition of marijuana is does not fully deter people from smoking pot. So if, if we want to have people being able to have um, better consumption habits, they should know what they're getting. Um, yeah, that's my final thought on that. And I mean, it just Jordan, if, if you felt like that question came out of nowhere, part of it is like, you know, we talk about the health effects. One of the things we found off of legalization is that CB1 and CB2 antagonists can cause things like cannabis hypermesis syndrome, which cannabis advocates are very hesitant to talk about on my show all the time. They want to actually downplay it. But yeah. this is like a result where we've found something negative that cannabis causes people. But my thing is, is like, we can point to that and be like, well, hey, maybe you want to avoid uh, 
you know, in uh, consuming something, something, something negative, which they also don't want to hear that can actually kill you. Actually, if you, if you suffer from dehydration from the, 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 the people call it scrometing results, you can actually die. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, high potency THC has a number of physical and and mental health, uh, you know, negative implications. Yeah. But I guess it, it kind of falls in line with something that one of you two brought up earlier, which is that legalization can also uh, encourage people to reach out to their physician about issues. And maybe we wouldn't have discovered that CHS even was a thing if it weren't for, you know, people being open and coming to their doctor about it, um, you know, and then also having the tools to see, well, maybe this was from a CB1 antagonist, you know, if we weren't keeping track of all these things, we wouldn't be able to say, Hey, this bad thing can happen from cannabis, you know, but anyways, that's, that's a tangent for me. Well, both of you, I want to, I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, remind people, uh, once again, where they can find you online and support you, please. Yeah, You can find me. I'm Jordan. Um, www.learnaboutsam.org is our website and Jordan Davidson on Twitter with the, uh, O's being zeros. And thanks so much for having me, Cole. Yeah, thank you, Jordan. Yeah, thanks again, Cole. Um, yeah, no, I'm Justin with with the Bullpack, uh, thebullpack.org. Find same same thing on Twitter, um, and you you can find me there at Justin Streckel. Uh, and and no, I just I, I really appreciate Jordan uh, ha- having this engagement. You know, despite the fact that we philosophically disagree, I think that that uh, there are areas where, you know, you uh, have candidly acknowledged the har- some of the harms of criminalization. I think you got a lot further to go. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm, I'm hoping that that you'll change your mind on a couple things. Um, but I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you personally are doing well in, in your own personal recovery. Thank you. Uh, things and and, you know, and, and you are so fortunate uh, from your story to to have a family and 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 the resources to be able to access the healthcare system and and I hope that you know that that in, while you're having these conversations and we're on the opposite side of of marijuana I hope that in those conversations that you're having you're also bringing up the the overall mental health services yes the void of cannabis but the need because you know I just. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. We there. There's moves right now to shut down the only 24-hour psychiatric inpatient ER in 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 the region, and it's just it horrifies me how this country deals with mental health issues. I have it in my family, um, so I'm really glad to hear that that you're doing well, and I and I hope that you're having those bigger conversations and losing on this cannabis conversation in your lobby meetings. I can disagree on that, but yeah, absolutely, bigger conversation is necessary. So, and thank you too for 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 talking to me. Yeah. Okay. Y'all be well. Yep. Maybe we'll do this again. Take care.